This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Richard Clarida. He is, where do I begin? Uh, He's a managing director and global strategist for investing giant PIMCO. He was also, uh, had served in the Bush White House in the uh, Treasury Department and uh, informally as an advisor to various senior people in that administration. What was kind of interesting to me is that a lot of people kind of came through that administration with their reputation uh, a little dinged up, and Clarida really had no such issue. Uh, He went in and came out really highly respected. He is incredibly insightful to things like uh, the fiscal process and how the Federal Reserve interacts with Congress and how their policies, how monetary policies and fiscal policies affect each other. He has really an amazing understanding of government programs and policies, economics, investment theory, and where they all intersect. It really is not the usual economics conversation. And so the process of looking at the world of finance and looking at investing through that lens really is is makes for for wonderful conversation and pimco has found that it's tremendously helpful uh to their process i think you'll really enjoy this conversation so with no further ado my conversation with richard clarida of pimco my special guest today is richard clarida he is an economist and Lowell Harris, Professor of Economics and International Affairs at the School of Public and International Affairs at Columbia University. He has been the Global Strategic Advisor for PIMCO since 2006. He is the former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury Department for Economic Policy under George W. Bush. He is the recipient of the Treasury Medal. He earned his B.S. from University of Illinois and a Master's and Ph.D., in economics from Harvard University. Richard Clarida, welcome to Bloomberg. Wow, great to be on your show, Barry. I'm a big, big fan, so it's a treat to be in the studio. Well, it's a treat to have you. You and I know each other for a while. I've been a fan of your work for quite a bit. I know of you from your work in the Treasury Department. Let's begin talking about your tenure as Assistant Secretary to the Treasury for Economic Policy. You were there really as the dot-com bust was accelerating, as the recession was starting. What was that like during that period? Well, you know, Barry, it was a very eventful time. In fact, interestingly enough, my first day on the job at Treasury was, was September 11th, 2001. Come so on. all know, we all knew where we were, but oh, I was just, man. just checking out my office. And you may know Peter Fisher. I was in Peter Fisher's sure. office when, when the second tower got hit. And then we were evacuated at Treasury. I actually saw people streaming out, uh, out, of, out of the the White House, and someone said, the Pentagon's been hit, so we're next. So it was actually quite quite scary on day I can day imagine. One. Sure. Uh, but it was an eventful time economically. Um, uh, the dot-com, of course, we did have the bursting of the dot-com uh, bubble. When I arrived in September, Barry, of 2001, the data was sort of close to indicating a recession on September 10th. The MBER hadn't called it yet, certainly the day after we, we thought we were going into 
uh, a uh, uh, recession. So in retrospect, given everything that's happened since then, it may seem like a pretty uh, pretty tame and quiet period, but it's pretty eventful. The dot-com sure. bubble, we had the, the Enron WorldCom accounting uh, scandals, uh, and, and obviously the, the financial system seizing up uh, for uh, a while. So yeah, it was a very eventful time. That, that's some first day. You know, you mentioned it was nothing like the financial crisis. I believe, if memory serves correctly, that recession began around March of that year, and by the time 9-11 came around, it was almost over. Yeah. I think we dated it November. Is that about exactly. right? But that's, of course, with the benefit of hindsight. At sure. the time, the MBER hadn't gotten around to right. that. But you're right. Now we know it started in March and ended in November. And you you were an economist and researcher for NBER. I left yeah. that out of yeah. your, your CV. Yeah. Um, what did you do for them? Well, MBER is an incredible organization that I think dates back to the, the, the 20s. It's essentially an independent organization for doing applied economic uh, research, really pioneering work in business cycle analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was fortunate enough to do my graduate work at Harvard in the in the late uh, 70s and early 1980s, right about the time that Marty Feldstein moved the MBER from New York uh, to Cambridge. And so it's really an incredible organization. I started as a faculty research fellow and, and now as a research associate and essentially part of a group that publishes applied research, in my case, in international macroeconomics. And for people who may not realize, that's the organization that officially dates the starts and ends of uh, U.S. recessions. Exactly. The Business Cycle Dating Committee. And and by the way, for people who have never been on the website, there's an enormous amount of of research, of data. It's really a tremendous resource for people who play in those fields. Absolutely. So since 9-11, the immediate response, or I think it was a week or so after that, then Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan cut rates. Yeah, he took them. Uh, started a rate cutting um, period where we were under two percent for two or three years, and then at one percent for a full year. What was the impact of those ultra low rates? Well, at the time, interestingly enough, uh, the time there was a concern of of a deflation. Uh, scare. Mm-hmm. Uh, the economy was recovering, but the recovery in 2002 uh, was 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 pretty feeble, um, and um, and so as a result, there was also a lot of of, of changes impacting the financial uh, system uh, as well. Uh, and so we did go through a period of very low rates. I think in that cycle, uh, the Fed cut the funds rate to one percent mm-hmm. uh, in uh, in uh, June of 2003 and kept it there for a year. Uh, obviously, uh, since that period of time, I must say, at the time I was at Treasury and I would have weekly meetings at, at the Fed as part of that job, uh, you know, I was aware of that policy and, and was not a critic of it uh, at, at the time. It did seem to be uh, a, an appropriate uh, uh, policy. I think since that point, uh, some critics of the Fed had pointed out that the Fed was very slow to begin raising rates mm-hmm. in 04 and 05 and 06. And of course, we also had a housing uh, bubble at, at the time. And so I guess one can try to make a connection between that policy and the housing bubble. And that may have been a factor, but I think there are a lot of other factors at work as well. Well, yeah. let's discuss that. Yeah. That's an interesting issue. I mean, clearly, anything priced in dollars or credit had a big move upwards. So yeah. whether it was commodities, gold, or mortgages, what other factors did you think were significant then? I think the other thing is we, we had what appeared to be, and what many, including myself, thought was a innovation uh, in finance securitization. Uh, and the fact that in mortgages, as in other parts of the credit market, credits were being securitized and they were no longer on the balance sheets of banks. Mm-hmm. And the Fed and others thought that made the financial system safer. 
Uh, and in theory, maybe it did, but obviously, uh, in retrospect, there were some excesses in securitization and in derivatives. And I think the system was more fragile than a lot of folks thought uh, at at the time. And well, certainly, and I think that was a big part of it. Th- there was a lot of hey, the sausage is only as good as the meat you put into <laughs> yeah. it. And we know there was a lot of uh, bad, you know, subprime yeah. mortgages that had gone in. Exactly. Uh, clearly, clearly a factor. I have to ask you, you're the recipient of the Treasury Medal for Distinguished Service. Yeah. What is this award? What What is it about? That has to be quite a uh, honor. Well, it, it, it was a real thrill, um, and it's not uh, routinely uh, awarded. Uh, I think in my case, the recognition reflected the fact that because – through the coincidence of timing, Barry, I arrived, as I mentioned, during a recession. Remember, the prior expansion had lasted 10 years, and so a lot of folks had sort of forgotten, what does a recession look like? How do we know when we're out of it? Talk a little bit about monetary policy. Yeah. And since we were discussing uh, the financial crisis earlier, what, what are your views on how well the Federal Reserve performed during that period? Uh, during... Coming out of the financial crisis. Sure. Yeah, the global financial crisis. Well, uh, I've said many times and a lot on Bloomberg Air, I give the Fed generally very high marks for crisis management under uh, Bernanke. Obviously, you cut rates as far as you can. The Fed cut the funds rate to zero a month or two after Lehman. So you really go to Plan B, uh, and Plan B was uh, doing quantitative easing, and in particular in the first QE program, focused on the mortgage market. So buying up all the as many as much mortgages as possible to drive rates to even drive lower rate, than yeah. zero. And also remember at that time both Fannie and Freddie had been put into conservatorship and so there was just a huge amount of uncertainty in the financial markets about what the mortgage market would look like without that backstop. And so the Fed got into the mortgage business, I think grudgingly. Fed officials have said many times publicly that they're not thrilled to be the biggest holder of mortgages, mm-hmm. but but they they were put into that position given the crisis. So so I would give the Fed uh, quite high marks during that period, uh, 08, 09, 10, uh, in in crisis uh, management. I think if we fast forward more recently, if I would have a a disagreement with the Fed, I think that um, the Fed's messaging has been inconsistent um, and uh, a little bit hard to follow in terms of normalization uh, for, for rates. And in particular, an issue, Barry, that I look at a lot is this idea that the Fed is targeting inflation. It says that the target's 2%. And yet, since they became an inflation target, or formally in 2012, inflation's been below 2% uh, every, every year. And and so the Fed sometimes says that, that 2% should be an average, uh, but they also said they don't want inflation to go above 2%, which means the average, of course, will be below. So I do think that now that the Fed has begun to normalize uh, policy and, they were, and we're at what the Fed thinks of as full uh, employment, uh, that uh, I think it is appropriate to continue that normalization uh, in, in rates. And obviously, the next issue, which I'm sure we'll want to talk about, uh, is the Fed's approach to normalizing and shrinking that huge $4.5 trillion balance sheet. So... Two points I have, yeah. two questions I have to ask you about. The first is, it sounds like when the Fed is on their rate tightening cycle, or in this case, normalization, they seem to be a little behind the curve, both this cycle and let's call it 03 to 06. Um, seems that they're, they'd rather go uh, slowly 
too slowly than too fast. Is is that a fair assessment? Well, I think I think it is, and I think I think in both episodes, uh, Fed officials have appealed to to risk management. Um, I think in particular now, given that you know rates are low, and we're in what 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 I and others have called a new neutral for monetary policy. So your listeners should remember, before the crisis, there was a pretty broad consensus among central bankers that the Fed's policy rate, the funds rate, should be some number at or above 4% once you get to full employment. Mm -hmm. Um, And I believe, and I think the evidence shows that for a variety of reasons, there's a new destination for the Fed rate, which is going to be, say, 2 or 2.5, not not 4. 4% is not a realistic number Well, think think about it now. Think about how you would value equities or any asset class if you were discounting those cash flows at 4% as opposed to to, to 1 or 2. And I think when, when people ask, well, why is it a new neutral? I think there are a couple of reasons. One, growth rates have slowed down. When you and I mm-hmm. began our careers, growth in the economy in a good year was three and a half, sometimes four percent. Right. Productivity growth was two, two and a half percent. Look at the 90s. You look, at the, look at the 90s. And so in a world where the economy is growing at four percent, you sort of need a four percent interest rate. But in a world where the real growth in the economy is two, in fact, basically one thing, Barry, about the last several years that people may not know is that U.S. has been a very stable economy in terms of volatility. GDP growth in a good year is 2.3, in a weak year is 1.7. But it's very tightly centered around that 2% number. And so with slow growth, slow productivity growth, and slow labor force growth, uh, the Fed needs to normalize, but the destination will be much lower than before. So let's talk about the Fed's balance sheet. Yeah, it's let's now do. four and a half trillion. Yeah. I think that's off of the high slightly. Basically so, at the peak, yeah. So so here's the question. Yeah. All these holdings, be they mortgage backed securities uh-huh. or treasuries, they're all dated. None of these are perpetual bonds. Right. We're not like the UK. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't the Fed simply let these roll off as they naturally yeah. come up on the maturity dates and gradually allow their book to normalize. And that would be one very plausible scenario. And and I think if you go back and read what Fed officials said five or six years ago, that's what they thought they would be doing. They thought that eventually they would just step back, they would stop buying, and as the treasuries mature, uh, that balance sheet would shrink, and as the mortgages prepay or people move or refinance, those mortgages would, would, would roll off. Um, it's pretty clear now, based upon the Fed minutes that have been released this year, that they are not going to pursue that passive approach. What they're going to do is they're going to try to smooth the path of balance sheet reduction. Uh, and I think they're doing so for a couple of reasons. When you say smooth, yeah. what do you mean by that? Well, that means not you, just let them roll right, off, right, right. but yeah. but replace some exactly. of them as they yes. come up. So, for example, what the Fed minutes suggested at the last meeting, Barry, was that uh, in any given month, they would set a maximum cap on the amount of treasuries and mortgages that could roll off. And any any additional uh, roll-off above that cap, they would then step into the market and, and buy. So the Fed will be shrinking the balance sheet, but it will still be buying along this normalization path. They Just buying s- less than buying comes less. off. They want to smooth it. Okay. Um, and they're also uh, in a situation whereby they made the case, which I agree with, that when they did QE, it lowered rates. So if you're reversing QE, it's probably going to raise rates. And they're really unsure by how much. And because they're mm-hmm. unsure, they want to really smooth this process uh, out, which means it's going to be very 
uh, gradual. And I think the other issue that your listeners should know, uh, Barry, uh, is there are two big decisions for the Fed to make. How fast do they let it roll off? Mm -hmm. And then what is the ultimate destination? They haven't really given us much insight on the ultimate destination. And I suspect that this Fed may not, uh, in the end, make a decision on the ultimate size for the balance sheet. That may be for the next Fed chair Mm -hmm. to figure out. So I would expect that what Yellen and company are likely to do in June or later this year is to lay out, if you will, a glide path or a scenario for balance sheet reduction. They may begin to do that, and then it'll be up to the next Fed chair to uh, implement as he or she sees fit. Let's talk a little bit about modern economic theory and some interesting and perplexing things that are taking place. Uh, Earlier, you mentioned productivity. It seems that we've sort of hit a productivity slump, and that raises the question, do we have a productivity problem or do we have a problem measuring productivity? Great point, and I think the truth is it's probably some uh, of of both. Clearly, there are an enormous amount of innovation, especially web-based innovation, and it's tough to measure that. We We all know that. Um, but I do think that for a variety of reasons that there is also a real productivity uh, slowdown. Part of it may simply be as you move towards a service economy, it's mm-hmm. intrinsically hard to measure even old-fashioned You can't services. measure widgets. Yeah. Uh, you can you measure widgets, widgets, but you can't measure – Right. if you subscribe to something on Apple iTunes and you're getting that service, exactly. music service – how right. do you actually measure? So, so, I, so I, I think I think I think there is an element to that, but I but I do think also that we're in a period of relatively slow productivity growth. In part, Barry, because we haven't had a lot of investment in this country really in about a dozen uh, years, uh, and in particular as the capital stock has moved towards equipment that depreciates faster, technology becomes obsolete. We probably have more of a, an investment shortfall than than we're even measuring. Is that uh, at there. a corporate level? Is that at a household level? Is that at a government level? Or is it across the board? I, I think it's I, I think it's across it's across the board. Also, you know, let's face it: in our system, we have different parts of the tax code that encourage different activities, real estate, for uh, example. And we have an abysmal tax code when it comes to taxing corporations, really incenting them to move to move abroad. So there's now, a lot we, we could do. Didn't to, we change recently some of the, both under Bush and Obama, the capital depreciation? That's been accelerated fairly rapidly versus... You know, you're not writing down a truck over 10 years the way you used there to. Were, there were some elements of that, but I think that they – I think a lot of them actually uh, – a lot of them actually expired. Mm-hmm. Uh, but getting back to your initial point, um, I think there is a measurement issue with productivity, but I do think apart from the measurement issue, we're in globally a, a period of pretty slow growth right now. But as I said, economists don't have a good track record at inflection <laughs> points, so we can have a big surprise. Perfect example, who would have said 10 years ago or even eight years ago? Go, that you would see the revolution in fracking and shale that we've seen. That was a technological revolution that's mm-hmm. transformed the entire Absolutely. global energy market, right? Remember, the thinking was, well, what's the big deal with fracking with oil at 100? Well, because of fracking, oil's at 60 and not 100. So that's a huge impact that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, nobody foresaw. And, and we haven't seen 60 in, in a long time. <laughs> the question is, when, when is oil going to be over 50 Yeah, again? yeah. Which, which kind of brings up the whole debate about coal, when technology makes natural gas a, a with the Saudi Arabia of natural gas as well as the Saudi Arabia of coal, but when they make it so accessible and so inexpensive, 
why move mountains to get coal when it's sure. so easy to pull gas out of the ground? Well, and, and also, Barry, the fact is, because of the LNG technology, uh, we can actually export our mm-hmm. nat- natural gas. And 10 years ago, the talk was we needed to import natural gas. Now we're exporting. I just read the other day uh, uh, an article that said, for the first time, liquid natural gas is a global marketplace yeah. it's not a regional market anymore exactly and it, and it once was and it's and you're actually starting to see that gas which used to be very very geographically segmented there's basically now approaching a global market in gas you're mm-hmm. right yeah so you you referenced earlier um the holdings in, in treasuries yeah. and the relative um rarity or or the limited supply of 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 quality sovereign bonds mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on this talk about a 50- or 100-year bond here in the United States? Well, you know, there is a there is a an, an issue, which is historically the Treasury is not issued beyond 30 years, no pun uh, intended. Uh, there is globally a demand. There's a certain community, uh, think insurance companies, think mm-hmm. other managers that really have a, an appetite for very long-duration assets. Some sure, countries, match actuarial yeah, tables. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think there could be a case uh, for, for doing so, uh, in particular, long-duration inflation index securities. Um, Say that again. Long, long duration, duration in so you have inflation a security, index so we right. have tips but, but they're again, relatively yeah, short again well but they go out to 30 years but but beyond beyond that because because essentially for many individual investors uh potentially the biggest risk they face over the life cycle is you you do all this hard saving, you earn some decent returns, and then two or three years of fifteen percent inflation, and right. and of course your younger listeners are saying, oh, fifteen percent inflation, that can't happen. That was my senior year in college. That was my <laughs> that was me in in grammar school yeah, yeah. having to go to the gas station <laughs> yeah. to get gas to mow the lawn, yeah. and um, we had we had rates that were yeah. were pretty crazy back yeah, then. So so I do think Barry that that I think there is a case for it. Uh, apparently, the Treasury under Secretary Mnuchin uh, is exploring this uh, this idea. I think what gives them some pause is compared to the UK, where there's a voracious appetite for very long duration assets, there may not be so much of one in the US. And so the Treasury doesn't want to get into an area where it's having to offer up a much higher yield to lock in that money for 50 years. So I think it's under discussion. So the, the fear is that the Treasury is going to overpay to borrow that money? Yeah. What is if it was tied to something like infrastructure or some oh, other? Sure. Is that the politics of it, or is that the structure of it? No, I think I think it could be tied to it. Could surely could be tied to, to infrastructure. And again, I think it's under it's under discussion. But I think ultimately the decision is going to come down to. How big is the appetite? Because if there really is an appetite for very long-duration instruments, then the Treasury would not have to offer much higher yield in order to, to sell those bonds. And I think they're still figuring that out. Let's talk a little bit about some of the private sector work yeah. you've done, because some of that stuff is really fascinating. You've, you've consulted for the likes of J.P. Morgan, Credit Suisse, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. What does that work look like? What's that process like? Well, it, it depends. I think in, in the case of Credit Suisse, that was almost 20 years ago, and I was essentially working with their FX team to build some econometric models of the of the currency market and currency 
uh, valuation. So they're essentially outsourcing some of that. To me, I was actually sort of proud. They actually still, they were running that model about for about 15 years or so. They've since retired it, but uh, so that was a good uh, project. You know, the New York Fed has a lot of programs. In the case of there, I visited during the summer, worked on some papers, co-authored with their uh, staff, uh, spent some time back in the 90s when Rick Mishkin was the director of research at the New York Fed, where he had a little kitchen cabinet of people who would come down every Friday and have have uh, uh, lunch. Uh, I love that idea of a kitchen cabinet around the New York Fed. Is that still going on? I believe so. I have not done it in in a while, but it's quite an impressive group. You had Chris Sims as a Nobel laureate. Someone named Ben Bernanke was there Mm -hmm. every week. Uh, Rick Mishkin, Mike Woodford. So it was was a real treat to be part of that group. If you remember the book from the 60s, The Money Game, by Adam Smith was the nom. Oh, yes. He describes... A similar sort of kitchen cabinet um, that was run by Scarsdale Fats, and it was movers and shakers on Wall Street who would get together on a, a Friday afternoon and discuss what they were doing, what they were looking at, what yeah. they were seeing, and there was all sorts of conspiratorial overtones. <laughs> Meanwhile, it was just six guys sitting around chewing the fat over what stocks they liked and didn't, and yeah. they, they had far less power than, than was ascribed to them. But, yeah. but I like the idea of that taking place... Uh, with, with the New York Fed. Speaking uh, of the Fed, you did work with uh, former Fed chairman Paul Volcker. I did, and it was one of the thrills of my professional career. So, so Do tell. Paul Volcker... Uh, Better known uh, as Tall Paul, uh, or uh, I should uh, say uh, also known Paul as... Paul Volcker for many years after he left Fed. I should say Paul Volcker is one of my... One of my uh, heroes, you know, you talk about profiles and courage, but uh, what Paul Volcker did under enormous uh, uh, pressure uh, and with very high stakes to break the back of inflation uh, in the early 1980s and really bequeath really the foundations for a 25-year bull market in bonds and stocks. He gets far less credit than he should. Oh, oh my goodness. He is really the prime architect. He's he's truly— A 30-year bond bull market and the recovery in both the U.S. economy and the U.S. stock market. Yeah, and and all based upon basically making the right decisions in a a four- or five-year period. So literally one of the giants of economics. But to answer your question, after he left the Fed, he spent many years at something called the Group of 30, which is basically Mm -hmm. an informal— organization of, of former policymakers. And the Group of 30 commissioned a paper by me. I'm, I'm not a member of the Group of 30. I'm not in that club. But they occasionally commissioned papers. Uh, and so Paul and his team asked me to write a paper right after the Asia financial crisis on right. sort of what 98? the— 98? Uh, 98, 99, mm-hmm. what the global uh, currency markets uh, would look like uh, in, the, in the aftermath of that crisis. And so I took it as an opportunity to write a, a long 60-page scholarly uh, paper thinking about the foreign exchange markets after the Asia crisis. So it was a real, real treat to work, to work with them. That, that's, that's quite fascinating. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about PIMCO. Yeah. What, you're, you're a global strategist for them. Yeah. You're, you're a managing partner in managing the New York director. office. Is yeah. that right? That's right. Tell us what that, that work is like. So I've been with PIMCO for 11 years. It seems just like uh, yesterday. Uh, so but... you've been there through a lot of pre and post <laughs> yeah. era and a lot a- of indeed. Yeah. A lot and, of interesting times. Yeah. And, and so what do I do for PIMCO? Well, I, I 
basically work on global macro, focusing on the G10 economies. Given my interest in my you know research, I spent a lot of time thinking about the Fed and other uh, central banks. Uh, obviously, central banks are key to value uh, bonds. Uh, PIMCO has a lot of clients, uh, especially uh, around the world, who I go see. And then more recently, since 2014, uh, the folks there have asked me to oversee our annual secular forum process, which is really an integral part of PIMCO's investment process. We've been doing it for 36 years. Wow. We bring in outside speakers three days a year just for the investors and the executives of the firm to think about what the global economy is going to look like over the next three to five years. So you mentioned the new normal in one of the earlier segments. I talked mm-hmm. about the new neutral. Those are both themes that emerged from our secular forum process. And so that's now essentially my my role is to coordinate that, that effort. That, that's fascinating. How do you integrate global monetary and global fiscal policy into ideas of either fixed income investing or yeah. or any type of investing. Yeah, well, and I think that's obviously that's 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 crucial for me to add value uh, to the to the operation. Uh, I think I'll give you a, uh, I'll give you a concrete um, uh, example. Uh, this whole idea that we talked about it uh, a moment ago about the new about the new neutral that is something that I began to think about based on my academic uh, work, uh, working with something that we would call uh, a forward-looking version of a Taylor uh, rule work mm-hmm. I did with Mark Gertler and Jordy Galley at, at NYU. So we were pretty early on in the in the late '90s in sort of focusing on a rules-based monetary policy. But one of the things about the original Taylor rules, it assumed that this neutral policy rate was constant. And I began to be persuaded that, in fact, we're in a world where where neutral is not constant. In fact, it's going to be lower, the destination for the funds rate. And so I basically was making the case internally that we needed to factor this in. That became what we call our new neutral uh, thesis. And it's been a really important part of the way that we've been investing for the last three years. So, So let me get you to define this. Yeah. Dynamic stochastic <laughs> general equilibrium modeling. Oh my, mouthful. And, and that's pretty much the name of, of one of your papers. Yeah, well, and that's that's the that's the the name of the branch of economics that I work in. Uh, that's an example where the jargon's probably relevant to other members of that club, but I think to the general public is probably not all that important. Essentially, what it means is that you're building a model of the economy. Uh, which is going to be modeling the economy over time, so it's dynamic over time, but it also allows for stuff to happen. Right. <laughs> stuff happens, so shocks to happen. So you want to know how the economy evolves when it's hit by shocks, you know, oil shocks, supply shocks, fiscal shocks. And so that's the stochastic uh, part of the equation. It's um, it, it, So in other words, it sounds much worse than it, than it really, uh, <laughs> yeah. than it really yeah, is. Exactly. Um, I previously had uh, your PIMCO colleague, Paul McCulley, yeah. on. He's somebody I, I met fishing in Maine, of yeah. all places. And he's a big Hyman Minsky fan who yeah. is infamous for saying um, stability breeds instability. Yeah. Do, do you think that's true? And given this period of stability we've seen, are we potentially yeah. breeding uh, more instability? Well, first of all, just a, since you mentioned... Paul, just a and note I know on he's Paul. teaching at Cornell yeah. these days. Just just a, a men- mention, I one of the real uh, high points of of, of my time 
uh, at PIMCO was a chance to work very closely with Paul for six, seven, or eight years. Uh, and I learned so much uh, from him. Uh, and in particular, when, when I got there in 06, he was already on the, on the Minsky uh, uh, soapbox. And I must admit, at that time, I had some vague recollection of reading Ms. Minsky in graduate school. But, but obviously, that was uh, a very, very prescient call on, on, on his part. To your broader question, um, clearly in retrospect, and believe me, Barry, I did not have a crystal ball in 05 and 06, but, but clearly in, in retrospect, uh, the stability of the, of the 2000s did breed instability through, as we mentioned, the securitization and the credit derivatives and all of that, and all of that stuff. So what I'd like to say is I think general – the old saying is you know, generals are good at fighting the last war. Mm-hmm. So I'm very convinced, Barry, that two things. There will be another financial crisis. And I'm convinced that the other thing is it will not look like the right. last crisis. Because we're always quite good at making sure the next crisis looks different. And that's where I think the real power of Reinhardt and Rogoff is, is we keep persuading ourselves that things are different because we're not going to have another you know, subprime uh, meltdown. But it'll show up somewhere else. You know, right. Greed is a constant fact of, of life. And I think in, in some ways the system still is uh, fragile because of the interconnectedness now globally. It's no longer a U.S. market or right. a French market. What happens in Beijing or Riyadh impacts all of our markets uh, as well. Uh, so I think one thing that we do know is the big global uh, huge banks have much more capital uh, than they did before. And as we mentioned, they have more liquid uh, assets. But that just means, I think, the risk migrates to somewhere else in the system. And, and I think we know less about that, frankly. We have been speaking with Professor Richard Clarida, a global strategist for PIMCO and professor at Columbia University. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. People think that when you are a refugee and they resettle to America, and all your problems are done. They don't understand that that's the beginning of everything. I was not born a refugee. I was made one. Learn more at EmbraceRefugees.org, brought to you by the Ad Council. Welcome to the podcast. Richard, thank you so much for doing this. This is yeah, really fascinating. Treat. And um, you were on my on my short list of people to reach out to, so I'm glad we managed to get together. Yeah. There are a bunch of things I wanted to get to before I get to my standard questions. This is me uh, going through uh, all my pages. I hate when it gets printed <laughs> two-sided because I can't find stuff. Um I asked about dynamic stochastic general equilibrium modeling. You went you went right into academia straight out of college. Yeah. Was that always the plan? Well, it was. Uh, so I went straight from the University of Illinois, where I, I must say I got an incredible education, one of the great land-grant uh, universities, and was an economics major. Wait, land-grant universities? What is that? That, that was a program that started under Abraham Lincoln, and really? the idea was that there would be federal land given 
to states if they would build universities um, on it, and there huh. was some support. Yeah, so very, very much public-private partnership, you know, Alexander Hav- Hamilton approach. Uh, yes, and so University of Illinois, Michigan, they're, they're called the land-grant uh, universities. Huh. Fascinating. Um, and I think tuition was $600 a term or a year, an incredible education, and then was an econ major uh, and uh, applied to graduate school and in one of the huge surprises and life-changing events of my life actually got into Harvard mm-hmm. had no no expectation that would happen and so when what was, from, what were, where were you expecting to go well I applied to some other good good schools but you know kids from coal mining towns in downstate Illinois <laughs> uh, Not, didn't didn't go to Harvard right. uh, but 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 I was admitted and and went there and then in those days you could get a PhD in four years typically now it takes five or six and so then I went straight from college to Harvard and then I went straight from Harvard to my first job as an assistant professor at, at Yale back in 1983 not not a bad set of yeah. affiliations and my that. office was right next to someone named Jim Tobin so talk about oh to, really? talk about an eye-opening experience as a 26 year old assistant professor and the, the fellow next door is Nobel laureate and legend Jim Tobin did you get to interact with oh, him very much absolutely that, that, yeah it's funny because as I speak with people uh, over the course of the show it's always fascinating when you find out, uh, Meyer Statman, the professor at Santa Clara, his uh, thesis advisor uh, was Peter Bernstein. Yeah. I mean, like, just crazy. Uh, really? Yeah. I had no idea he was an academic that yeah. way in terms yeah. of just that. That's fascinating. So, yeah. so. So well, that was the plan, yes. Right. So, yeah. and then from Yale, you've been to in Columbia, Columbia for a long time since now. 1988. Yeah, almost 30 years. How have students changed over that period? Wow, that's a great question. I would make the following observations. First of all, there's a lot more interest in economics now than 30 years ago. So the number of economics majors at places like Columbia or University of Illinois is double or triple what it was huh. 20 or 30 uh, years at, uh, ago. At whose expense? Is it that much less French well, literature majors? Uh, or? They're, they're, it's coming, at, coming out of somewhere. I won't, I won't speculate where, but they're coming into economics. Um, given, the, given the cost of colleges, one would think that a move towards is this going to help me get a job and pay yeah. back these loans might be driving some yeah, of this. Yeah, that that could that could well that could well be. So I the other the other thing certainly um, when I'm now talking about maybe in the graduate program is it is truly now a global market for students who are applying to graduate school. So when I was a graduate student, I think in my class at Harvard, of the 25 students who I entered with, I think 21 uh, were educated in U.S. uh, colleges. Um, And I think in the typical U.S. Ph.D. program now, fewer than half the students are U.S. students just because there's a global market from people in Europe, South America, Asia. And so the number of applications to U.S. Ph.D. programs from around the world has just gone up by leaps and, and bounds, so it's a very international uh, student body. You know, I've seen data that says half of the C-level Silicon Valley um, executives are foreign-born, come here and say, hey, we like it here, let's build, yeah. a, uh, let's build yeah. a company. Are, are you seeing these students staying here, getting jobs, staying in America, mm-hmm. or do they take this knowledge and go back to wherever? Uh, it 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 depends. I think many of them desire to stay here uh, if if they can. Uh, but certainly it, there are global opportunities as well. Barry, I think the third thing I would mention, and now I'm going to sound maybe a little bit uh, of an odd thing to say, um, but I think the amount, the, the mathematical background now of students in U.S. Ph.D. programs 
um, it is really off the chart. So programs do now do a very good job of sorting students by pure math ability. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily an unallied positive. I think there's more to economics than math. And I think in some ways that maybe dates my vintage of people. So for me, economics was always about understanding the economy intuitively. And then the math was sort of a tool to to get at it. But I do think now that there is, the pendulum has definitely swung towards beginning with the math and sort of reverse engineering the economics, which always makes me uncomfortable. So even when I teach a PhD course, before I launch into the math, I try to do the intuitive version. And so I may be the last generation of people who still do it that that way, where you start with the economics and then you do the math later. Your, your Columbia colleague, Emmanuel Derman, yeah. runs the financial yeah. engineering school, yeah. and he was telling me that he's just watched over 20 years it go from more, mostly Americans with a smattering of um, yeah. uh, foreign-born students to more and more foreign-born students. And he said the quality of the math skills of kids coming in, these are all Ph.D.-level oh, yeah. brilliant math students. Yeah. And that's just the cost of entry. You build from there. Yeah. It's, quite, it's quite fascinating. Yeah. Um, so let's let's go over a couple of other questions I missed. Uh, I want to see what I didn't get to that I thought was uh, important. Oh, so we we talked about the financial crisis. What do you think are some of the bigger misconceptions about monetary and fiscal policy? And following the crisis, we we had a huge monetary response but not much of a fiscal response yeah what what do you what was the impact of that well let's let's start with uh with, with uh, the second part of your question uh there um so i think the consensus among academic and economists and policymakers going into the crisis was that in practice in in the u.s fiscal policy uh, is not a particularly effective tool because of the lags in implementation and the politics involved in getting bills through. And the view is you should really just have monetary policy focusing on counter-cyclical uh, objectives. I, you know, as rates have gone to zero, as we've gone into to quantitative easing, and in Europe they've gone to negative rates, I think certainly the profession is more receptive to thinking about fiscal uh, fiscal policy. You know, Barry, we did have a big fiscal response in 2009. We had a $1 trillion deficit that year. So, but but you're right that we went actually from stimulus in 2009 to a period of uh, a fiscal austerity uh, after 2010 uh, or, or or so. Uh, and 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 I think I think as a practical matter, uh, most economists would agree that there are a lot. There's a lot of positive that fiscal policy can do in terms of infrastructure, in terms of encouraging investment uh, and the like. But I think in terms of being a supple tool for countercyclical uh, uh, uses, it, it it has a lot of problems. How how long of a lag do we typically see with monetary policies implementation? How soon is it felt yeah. Yeah. in the broader economy? Well, the old yeah exactly. So there's no implementation lag with monetary policy. In fact, the Fed doesn't even have to wait for a meeting if if the situation calls that you can have an intermeeting move, as we know. So there's no there's no implementation lag with monetary policy, but there is a lag from when policy impacts the the real economy. You know, Milton Friedman famously said. Uh, at one time that you know monetary policy operates with long and variable lags. I think more recent research has indicated that the lags, perhaps because the economies become more financialized, the lags are perhaps not so 
not so long. And in particular now, Fed officials like Bill Dudley, who I think does a great job, talk about financial conditions as being an input into the Fed's uh, calculation. Um, I think the best example of, of the challenges with countercyclical fiscal policy is you look back in the President Obama administration when we had a big recession. They wanted to do countercyclical policy. Uh, and there was some talk about doing infrastructure. And I think you can look right. it up on Google. President Remember Obama shovel said, ready? Yeah, yeah, he said, I found the hard, at the hard way, there aren't a lot of shovel-ready projects. So that's sort of an example of the implementation. But if you think about it, coming out of a financial crisis, you don't want shovel-ready products, projects. You want long-scale things that will put people back to work, yeah. will start that pro- – you know, if you're really dealing with a, a Keynesian stimulus to replace – the private sector shortfall, yeah. well, why not have a two, three, four-year post-crisis project yeah. instead of, all right, we're going to repave a few roads and then we're done? Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I agree. And I and I think that, that we'll see what comes out of the discussions in Washington on, uh, on, on, on infrastructure. But I think clearly the economy needs better and more infrastructure, but, but so far there's a stalemate about putting more in place. Is it is it the spending aspect of it is, or, or is it – a lack of consensus on what needs to be spent upon. I think it's all the above. I mean, infra- infrastructure, if it's done appropriately, uh, should generate future tax revenues with, with more economic uh, growth. I think I think so. That needs to be factored in. I think the element is how you select projects and how you uh, prioritize. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know that that sometimes uh, is also a bottleneck uh, in these uh, uh, in, in these things. Yeah. So, by, by the way, uh, here are my, my standard questions, and I'm, I'm holding them off because I know so many of these we, we blew through. Yeah. Because as we were chatting, um, each of your comments led to a different question. Mm-hmm. So I really, mm-hmm. I really hardly used my, my usual questions. Um, new normal, no signs of inflation. Uh, Okay, so we could talk. Next question. So I referenced the Fed as as being the only game in town when there was monetary policy, but not fiscal policy. Yeah, is that still the case today? Because we haven't seen a whole. We were expecting a wall. We were expecting some yeah. infrastructure. We were expecting a lot of things. Yeah. Hey, we're kind of you know it's it's we're halfway through the first year. We really haven't seen a lot of motion on any of these things. Yeah, well, exactly. So, and I think the economy right now, at least according to the Fed, is close to full uh, employment. So, you're, we're probably not at a point, Barry, where we need a you know a lot of countercyclical policy. But you're right; there had been some view coming out of the election. By now, we would have some tax reform, infrastructure, uh, and uh, the like. Repatriation um, of overseas so dollars, ab- as well. ab- which could be which could be used. And I mentioned in an earlier segment, you know, our our corporate tax code is really an abomination. It doesn't raise a whole lot of money, and it encourages multinational companies to locate abroad. So there's a lot that we can do there. But but I think really the mode that we're in now is, you know, the Fed wants to normalize. I think a point I've made uh, uh, many times on, on Bloomberg and other places is I think right now we have to think of the Fed with the funds rate at less than a percent with inflation around two, policy is now still very accommodative in For the sure. U.S. So. I prefer not to call the Fed as, as necessarily tightening rates. I think I think here Yellen's correct. I think the Fed is removing accommodation. I think as we remove accommodation, we get to a point perhaps 
uh, into into 2018, where you can think of policy as being tight. But with a fully employed economy and inflation around two and the federal funds rate at 90 basis points, this is not a tight monetary policy. You've used the phrase normalization. Yeah. We're, we're moving from a emergency footing yeah. back to a more normal yeah. rate And the rate emergency's regime. over. That's, yes. Yeah, the emergency's over. Yeah. So, so I have to yeah. go to the abomination that is the tax code. Yeah. This is very much a series of Christmas ornaments, yeah. un, unrelated, all hung yeah. on on uh, the tax code as as responses to specific lobbying by specific yes. things. Yeah, let's talk about what the U.S. corporate tax code should look like. Yeah. So, what do you think would makes the most amount of sense if you had? If you got tagged by this White House yeah. and they said, "Give us five things we should do," what would your response be? Well, uh, I would I would make make a couple points with the proviso that I'm not a tax expert, but but what I would say is we need lower rate lower rates and a broader base, and we need a code. I would go through the code with a magnifying glass and a microscope to get rid of anything that would encourage a U.S. company to locate production abroad when it could do that production in in the US. Um, and there are different ways to do that. Um, but I to me, my principle would be lower rates because we do have very high rates now. So and actual, broad base, rates, actual rates are 35%. Effectively, they're about 18% but, by the but time. But effectively, because of all the, all the gamesmanship. Yeah, especially for multinational companies. You mm-hmm. know, if you're a US-based company, you, you more or less are paying close to that rate. So multinationals, I would really go, I guess my bottom principle would be lower rates or broader base and really go through with a magnifying glass and a microscope any item in the code that actively increases encourages a company to locate abroad. And we have a lot of those now. So what what you is talk a, about the repatriated earnings, for example. Uh-huh. Those are sitting abroad. Doing they, nothing. Doing, doing nothing. Um, and the reason they're abroad is our code has said if you, quote, keep your foreign profits abroad, you know, you're not facing a U.S. level of taxation. Right. So I think any deal that we do see in Washington will have you know, a levy on those overseas profits brought into the U.S. And then going forward, we really need a code that doesn't encourage companies to do that in the first place. What's a reasonable rate for corporate taxes? Trump wants 15 percent. The number we've been hearing from from people in the uh, House yeah. has been 25 percent. What What do you think is both reasonable economically and politically feasible. I, 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 I don't would, want to put you on the spot. No, anything, no, I understood. Right? <laughs> I, I, I think, I think if you actually do a real reform, a la Reagan in '86, uh, where you're, where you are broadening the base uh, and you could afford much lower rates, certainly something in the range of 20 to 25 percent in a serious tax reform, I think would be would be feasible and appropriate and would make us competitive. And then the conversation that's come out of Paul Ryan's office, yeah was making small businesses theoretically one of the prime economic yeah. engines of growth yeah. and he wants to make the LLC rate the yeah. small companies partnerships etc yeah. wants that rate to be the equivalent of of yeah. the big corporate rates is is that a realistic possibility well i think i think and again with the proviso that i f- i focus on money and not taxes uh, my understanding of that issue um, is that it would have to be structured in a very careful way, or otherwise you open up a big gap between the personal rate and the, Everybody and the corporate rate. Because LLCs. as you know, a lot of those LLCs are now uh-huh. probably familiar with that. Pay at the personal rate, and right. so uh, and so. Um, 
it would it would not be simple to go down that road. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but but it would have to be structured in in a way that you're not essentially uh, you know eliminating tax uh, at the individual. Level. As individuals, we can't all become corporations <laughs> to lower our tax rates. Yeah. Become, become right. partnerships. Right. So so uh, so the the rate the base. Uh, what about all those favored um, one-offs and and specific? Uh, special interest lobbied uh, breaks for in the tax code. Is it possible to get rid of those in exchange for a lower rate, or is that just not realistic? I, you know, doing Barry doing true tax reform uh, is actually hard. The last time we really did it in the U.S. was was thirty uh, plus years uh, ago. Uh, so I think that the most likely scenario, based on history. Um, is that we do get a reduction in corporate rates. We get some base broadening, um, potentially some movement on infrastructure. But, but I think that it's a pretty much of a long shot now that we get a, a true tax reform uh, in this process. I hope I'm wrong. I'd love to see it. But, but Is that a function of just a loss of momentum and other politics, or is it – it's so complex well, and there's there, such a I think narrow have window. To, I think the 86 episode's instructive, and some of, my, some of my friends get bored when I say this, but what was instructive about that episode, and I should mention that, that I had the good fortune early in my career to work at the Council of Economic Advisors in the Reagan administration. So on my wall is a picture with me in the Oval with President uh, uh, Reagan. Um, and so I was there in 86 as a junior economist, and so it was a vivid impression uh, on me, and what people have to remember about that is that that process was bipartisan from the get-go. Right. Bill Bradley, you know, Hall of Fame basketball player sure. and legendary senator from New Jersey, was a big proponent of doing tax reform. Dick Gephardt in the House, Dan Rostenkowski, you know, the kingmaker from Illinois, were big parts of of that. So I think the long shot now is at least as of June 2017, we don't see a lot of bipartisan consensus on tax reform like we did in '86. Right. And was Jack Kemp uh, and, around that period yeah, as well, just getting just getting started in the house. Yeah. So that that's you're describing what is essentially a different era, a different of both, era, both economics, tax policy, and yeah. politics. Yeah. And when that bill passed, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I, as I recall, when it did pass the Senate, it was with well over sixty votes, and and so yeah, it was definitely a bipartisan bill. So I have a friend who will go nameless, yeah. but he's in uh, involved in the Trump administration. Yeah. And he knows that uh, fiscally, I'm fairly conservative. Socially, I'm much more liberal yeah. than, than than Trump is. And when the travel ban first came out, the direct messages back and forth, I said, listen, you have a narrow window to get some corporate tax reform through. I know he doesn't like to take counsel from other people. Mm -hmm. You got to get this nonsense to stop because this window isn't going to be open forever. And this is really the single most important thing facing the U.S. economy. If you could get a major corporate a corporate tax reform, a lower rate, a broader brace, and repatriate a few yeah. trillion dollars overseas. Yeah, it'd be huge. You're teeing up the next two or three decades of economic Absolutely. growth. Absolutely. So stop messing around with a travel ban, and mm. you think mm. this window is going to be open forever. It's not. And what I'm hearing from you is a sense that I, that window is closing. Well, it it. I hope I'm wrong. I hope we're wrong. Uh, but 
right now it appears to be the okay, the other thing to remember, Barry, is about the the way Washington works. And again, I spent most of my career outside of Washington, but a couple of tours of duty there is we think about <laughs> a president having a four year term, but if you talk to people who've actually done it, I've gotten to know some former chiefs of staff, for example. When you're in the White House, you don't think you've got four years. You're thinking you've maybe got 14 months because basically you got, you got the midterm right. elections coming right. up. And your popularity and then, and at then that I, point will determine yeah, whether the Congress right. critters are going right, to either right. be a, a, a accommodative or are going to run away from you in the next election. And, and then you might say, well, but then in year three, you get past the midterm elections. Well, then in year three, the, the networks, we're all, we're all speculating on what the right. next presidential election is going right. to look like. So, so it's a 14-month... An eight-year president maybe has 24 months. That's amazing. To actually get stuff done. Reagan was the exception because he got a lot done at the end of his second uh, term. But but in general, well, his popularity. Also, yeah. people forget yeah. his popularity then was through the roof. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the past couple of presidents, Bush had a huge popularity oh. surge in 01 oh, after yeah. 9/11, yeah. and that gradually faded. Yeah. And Obama's popularity really was the last six. Last year of his presidency and beyond, yeah, yeah. he was most popular yeah. out of office. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying that sarcastically. If you really only have 14 months, yeah. that really changes the dynamic yeah. of what can be accomplished. Yeah. Reagan really is the exception. I guess to some degree Clinton— Clinton got a lot done as well. Right. Not ca- um, notwithstanding the impeachment but, and, and everything. And, and, by, and by the way, in both cases, it helps to have a booming economy in year sure. seven of your— You know, Clinton's economy and Reagan's economy were in both. a lot of ways very similar right. in that they had legs, they had strong growth in year seven, year year eight. and uh, Very yeah. much technology-driven. Yeah. A whole lot of new industries came about. Out. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And to our earlier point, both enjoying the fruits of Paul Volcker's Thank you. labors. Thank you, Paul Volcker, my hero. Yeah. So on that note, let's jump to some of our favorite questions. Yes. These are the standard questions I ask all of my guests, yeah. some of which I created, some of which actually came from listeners, including, uh, no, this question is my question, which is, tell us something that people don't know about your background. Well, Barry, I'll tell I'll tell you something a lot of people don't know about my background. I am a very avid amateur musician and I've recorded oh, really? my first CD. Get out. I have a copy for you. Oh, I'm excited. And all original tunes Come and on. what's absolutely recorded with some of the best session players on the planet and two of the tracks were recorded at Abbey Road Studios. For those In the of us UK. EMI yeah, Abbey, Abbey Road, Road Studio, Studio too. Studio wow. too. So that's, that's a little present for you. And what do you next, play? I well, I play a little acoustic guitar and some bass. But my real, my real oh, uh, then you realization yeah. is I'm at a point now where if I hear a song, I am able to work with top session players through this technology. Send them my song files. They overdub their parts, and I mix them in my home studio in Connecticut. Yeah, so. that, that's how um, uh, Ben Gibbard of of Death Cab for Cuties created postal service yeah the name of the now today you do it electronically Mm. the name postal service comes from them mailing tapes back and forth yeah uh up from i think it was california to seattle and back so you're doing this all digitally online and you're you're yeah working with tops and anyway it's available on itunes richard clarity the album's called time no changes so get out that's a that's amazing and and we were talking earlier about uh lawrence juber yeah 
go to YouTube, search for for Lawrence Juber Beatles. Yeah, I mean he has a whole universe of his own original recordings, which if you're at all uh, a guitarist, you'll find As fascinating. I am. Yeah, I'll look but, it up. Yeah. But the Beatles stuff is back back to Derek Thompson's comment. It's familiar enough that it catches your ear, but it's different enough that it it yeah. throws you off step. And and that um, I'm trying to remember who the graphic designer was and an engine architect in the 30s who who called it um, most advanced yet acceptable. Maya was. Uh, oh, music, I love that idea. M- musically, it's how far away can you get from what you're familiar with, yeah. and yet still have enough recognition that yeah. it's accessible. And that's one of the reasons I find the Juber, Beatles, yeah. and McCartney wow. stuff. It's it's clearly oh I know this song I know yeah. this melody but it's such a different arrangement that yeah. it, it stands oh sure it's not just a cover I mean when you hear Beatles covers they're either uh, too similar uh, or too yeah, different it's, it's very tough to cover the Beatles believe me I tried it earlier in when my when you hear Juber stuff you're gonna yeah. say yeah. oh that is the sweet spot yeah. between uh, the melody is note for note perfect, yeah. but the arrangement is so oh. and there's no overdubs or electronics it's just him playing that's remarkable um. Cutting room this week. You should. You yeah. should definitely. And I. It's an early show. It's like seven thirty, which oh, is great. I can for, make that. For I was us. gonna say for an early riser, <laughs> yeah, seven thirty exactly. show is great. Yeah. So thank you for the CD. I will yeah. definitely uh, reference that uh, and and listen to it this weekend. Um, you mentioned James Tobin. Tell us about some of your early mentors. Well, I, I would list three. Um, I was very lucky in college to have a mentor, a professor at University of Illinois, a gentleman who I'm still great professor. He's at Georgetown now, a guy named Matthew Canzanieri. I went to Matt's office as a sophomore, and I basically said, I've taken your course, so what does someone have to do to actually become an economics professor? You're like, what is, how do you actually go from being an undergraduate to an economics professor? And he took out a, a legal pad and he said, you need to take these courses and you need to do, have this math and this preparation. And he basically gave me a template that I followed. And so that mentorship and that support as a 19-year-old, 20-year-old undergraduate was, was incredibly valuable for me and I'll be forever grateful. And we're still friends and I, we still, you know, with each other. At Harvard, I had the good fortune to work with a guy named Benjamin Friedman. Ben is an incredible economist. And one thing I learned from Ben is Ben always thought good economics was about the questions that we ask, not about the methodology we use. And I've always tried to remember that because economics can get arcane and mathematical. So in my own work, I always try to start with with an interesting question and then Mm -hmm. let the methodology uh, work out as it will, and I learned that from from Ben. So I think I'd, I'd name those those two. That that's that's really quite fascinating. You knew it nineteen exactly yeah. what you wanted to do. Yeah, I know. It, it's, it was clear. I mean, well, not everybody. That that's quite. A, I actually a knew it. I, I knew it eighteen because I took principles of economics at the University of Illinois from a very dynamic professor. And I just that's that's what I'm doing. I want to be an economics professor. Wow, that's oh yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I won't tell you what my first economics <laughs> course was like. None okay. of that made any sense to me. Okay. Wait, humans are rational profit maximum? That's not how humans behave. Um, <laughs> so, so what about investors? What investors out there have influenced the way you look at markets and the economy? Yeah, I think uh, I would I would name you mentioned him in an earlier segment. I bring it up again, Paul. Macaulay, I think, you know, given that my background in, is in macroeconomics, I tend to be influenced by people who try to use macro to think about markets. 
And I think I think Paul is a genius in that he's very creative. He's not tethered to convention or custom, and mm-hmm. has got a great gut for macro and market. So I'd probably mention Paul very much in that in that category. Now he's gonna come to me and said, you know, Clarita said I was a genius. I have to listen to that when I when <laughs> all I want to do is go well, fishing. I do. Right? It's like now, now you painted well, me into a corner. Stay, well, by the stay way, out of the I, canoe with Paul. Let me let me give you an anecdote. So mm-hmm. I did a paper for a Boston Fed conference in 2010 on the financial crisis, and so in researching that, I went back and read all of the people who claimed they had called the financial crisis. Uh, and I basically concluded that there are only two people who basically not only got it right, but got the reasoning right. And Macaulay mm-hmm. was one, and Raghu Raj and Raghuram Rajan at Chicago mm-hmm. was the other. So a lot of people were saying we could have a crisis, and, but they got the reasons wrong. The, other, right. the people who actually saw the fragility in the financial system and the Minsky stability creating instability, really Macaulay and to some extent Rajan. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. If I remember, Rajan spoke at— um, Jackson Hole. At a Jackson Hole. In 07. Very uh, people like, what is this guy talking yeah, about? Exactly. It was very much not only prescient— but timely, because there have been people who have been calling the co- calling <laughs> sure. for the crisis every year for the past twenty years. Yeah, yeah. they don't they don't get credit. No, exactly. But no. 07. Yeah, August that, of 07. That's yeah. a good call. That's a really good call. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about books. This yeah. is very often listeners' favorite yeah. um, segment. What what sort of books do you read? What what have you enjoyed? What do you recommend? Well, I'll. I'll just give you ones that have made an impact on me as opposed to what's on my nightstand now. I'd name, I'd name three. Um, I would start with, I think, a, a classic in both its scholarship and influence is a book that some of your listeners may or may not know called The Best and the Brightest by David oh, sure. Halberstam, which is a model of how to do concise biographies of a number of individuals who were all interacting. So there's been so much mythology about the Kennedy administration, but Halberstam is a of course, passed away. Brilliant uh, writer and reporter, and just goes these wonderful character sketches of all the people from different backgrounds: McNamara, the Kennedys, the Bundys, and all the how they all led to this what we now know groupthink and crisis collapse over Vietnam. So I name that. I would also name a book that's been very often cited but had a big impact on me: Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, mm-hmm. as a model of how to. What's great about him is that he spans multiple disciplines, and so academics oftentimes focus very narrowly on one little thing, and his understanding and breadth of pulling in different disciplines, history and sociology and anthropology, is really uh, uh, remarkable in that. Another one which very popular, but I thought was a model of, of being both clever and well thought through is the Gladwell tipping point argument, which mm-hmm. I remember from an essay he did in The New Yorker and then yes. turned that into a book and now an, in, an industry. Uh, so those, <laughs> those would be three that I would, that, that I would uh, mention. In terms of recently, uh, again, getting back to the music element, there's a wonderful uh, exhaustive biography of the Beatles by Mark Lewison called uh, uh, All Those Years. Uh, he spent 11 years just doing the period from 1955 to 62. Really? Um, it, it's come out in two versions. One is the version that, that's about 400 pages that you can get you know, at any place. And then in the UK, they released actually the first manuscript he submitted, which is 1,400 pages. Oh, my God. And so if, if you want to know everything on every day, what newspaper they were reading and how much they paid for a, a beer at the pub in 1956, then you want, you want the original manuscript version of all I have, those years. Have you seen the black 
um, black covered Beatles book. I think Spitzer. Spit Bob Spitz. Spitz. I have that one too. I haven't gotten to it yet, yeah. but it's like also almost a thousand pages. Yeah. It's monstrous, and people who've plowed through it said it's wonderful. Yeah, it is, but it's just an intimidating but, but, pile. But but but, but Lewison is the. Is the gold standard. That's the way to go he all those years. Yeah. Give me one more that you're reading recently or currently. Um, I'm, tr- I'm, tr- I'm trying to keep up on um, I'm trying to keep up on on geopolitics in China, actually. And for, for the most part, books are not as useful. So I'm trying so to get steeped. Fast. I'm trying to get steeped because I think what's going on now, Barry, is a remarkable transition. And the thing for about sure. China is one of my friends told me. A guy named Dave Smick. I don't know if you know Dave Smick, but by the way, he'd be a great guest. I do not make well, an I'll recommend Dave. Dave is a fascinating fellow, and and, and Dave's line on, on China was um, thing. He said, "Rich thing about China is that there are a billion people, uh, but there are only six who know what's going on, and they're not and they're not talking." So I think we're all That's a funny we're, line. we're sort of all on the fly with with China. But what's going on there, both economically and now the transition, potentially geopolitically and militarily. Uh, it's really going to transform the next 10 years. And so anything I can get on China by any inform- – I guess of those, Kissinger's probably the best. So Kissinger's written, really? written a book on China that is a, a must a must huh. read. I, um, I've been – the CFR's regular updates on China yeah. are – they have boots on the ground. They're yeah. fascinating. And the thought of, of any sort of book is immediately dated because yeah. seem, stuff seems to be changing yeah. so rapidly. So that, that's an area where the Internet and having networks of people, either directly or indirectly, can be very valuable because, you know, we can assemble things now uh, you know, on our computer screens that 20 years ago would have, impossible. Would have been right. impossible. So right. I, on China, I'm doing it sort of on the fly. Yeah. So let's talk about what's changed since you became yeah. an, an economist. What is different in the industry today versus 10, 20, 30 years ago? Well, as I said, I think the preparation, I think the sorting in terms of getting into graduate programs is is very effective at sorting and getting in people with like Six Sigma math skills. I guess I'm a bit of a bit of a skeptic that that's all you need to do economics. So that would be one thing. The other thing, of course, is big data. That's the buzzword now. But uh-huh. but I think about my early efforts as an empirical macroeconomist and how what a big deal it was, you know, to get a data set and to clean a data set. And we just now take it for granted because on our right. Bloomberg term, look, it's all there. I mean, still, I'm not that Bloomberg needs the plug, but I'm a kid in a candy store in a Bloomberg terminal. I mean, the amount someone, of data available oh, is just oh, astonishing. It, it's astonishing, and your ability to to sort it and compare it and end it. So, so I think we're just at the infancy. You know, in the sort of baseball analogy, we're not even out of the first inning in terms of what big data is going to do. The challenge with big data, of course, is there's going to be a lot of a lot of dead ends and a lot of false promises. But I'm absolutely convinced in the next ten years, someone or some group of entrepreneurs are going to get big data. Right, and it's gonna it's gonna transform uh, economics and probably every other social science. I read and not, policy. I read not too long ago. Steve Ballmer, former CEO yeah. at, at Microsoft, has been assembling and releasing these giant data sets yeah. for people well, to play. Well, with. you know, for example, earlier we talked about now casting the idea that instead of forecasting the future, you're trying to track the present. Uh, and now casting is all about about big data, and we could be at a point in ten years where, when the, by the time the GDP numbers come out, nobody even really cares because we will have processed all of that on our Bloomberg terminals. Now, don't you think day to day, week to week, month to month GDP activity is so volatile 
Not that it's volatile in a negative way, right. but the weekly and monthly cycle is so all over the map that it's yeah. very hard to extract a credible. Because so far, I think it's the Atlanta and the New York sure. Feds have the GDP now. Exactly. And neither of them have been especially accurate. No. Well, and it, and it shows you how hard it is to do. Look, the U.S. economy makes $17 trillion worth of stuff every year, and that doesn't even count all the churning of existing uh, assets. So it is a complex uh, beast. Uh, but uh, but I but I think that there are there are things we're learning from from this that are going to be useful. And I and Barry, I can tell you, I definitely see it in financial markets. Look, for example, at the Bloomberg Surprise Index. So this whole idea, instead of is the data strong or weak, is the data stronger or weaker than expected? That's right. that's revolutionizing the way people right. think about Rel everything is relative value. to expectations. Every, everything's relative to expectations when, when now. people look and at before folks like Bloomberg archived that, you sort of knew it, but there was no data set right. on, on surprises. We, we used to see it with quarterly earnings surprise. Yeah. And sometimes you'd have a good number in the market, stock would sell off, and sometimes you'd have a lousy number, <laughs> and it would rally. And, and really, the question isn't, what are the earnings? Yeah. It's exactly but, what you referenced. What are the earnings relative to expectations? Yeah. Yeah. Is this an upside or downside surprise? Yeah. A negative number could be an upside surprise. Yeah. A positive number could be a downside. It's very counterintuitive until you start yeah. realize, thinking yeah. about What's already reflecting the but, prices? But that's an area where the data is now available, and even 15 years ago, it wasn't. That that that's quite fascinating. What do you so big data? What do you see as the next major shifts in economics? Well, everyone says behavioral, and I don't want to rain too much on the behavioral parade. Hasn't I think, that already happened? Well, I think behavioral economics is very important. Here's what the stumbling block is. The stumbling block is we have very good insights into individual behavioral um, departures from rationality. And we focus on this a lot at PIMCO. Our, our CIO, Dan Iveson, is very interested in this. In fact, at our forum, we had a speaker, a woman named Tally Sherritt, who, by the way, would be oh, sure, a, a I know the name. fascinating she wrote guest. wrote a book on, um, on, on, on optimism bias. Yes. Yes. And so she does the neuroscience. Our brains are wired to be optimistic. And it's right. pretty neat stuff. So, if, by the way, there's an evolutionary reason yeah. for that. And that's her argument. If yeah. you're not optimistic, <laughs> you'll you stay never in leave the cave, the cave. Exactly. right? It's, yeah. It's, yeah. So 10 of us are going to go down and we're yeah. going to kill a mammoth. And yeah. if we're successful, yeah. hey, the group will have meat all winter. Right, yeah. A few of us may not make it back, and but the species, you've, you've nailed it, works. it. Yeah. yeah. And so we actually had her at our forum in May talking about optimism bias to a bunch of bond traders. So so, so behavioral, behavioral is very relevant. The, the area that is either going to be a stumbling block or will be a breakthrough is to put behavioral economics in general equilibrium with markets, right? So yes, you know, you've done this very successfully as an investor. You know that there's momentum, there's pessimism, sure. optimism in markets. There, there's a psychology in markets. Um, but at some point, people are buying and selling, and, and it's got to add up. So I think we're still falling short of having a general equilibrium model of how be different behaviors interact. Uh, but that would be the next big thing if we could get what I would call a general equilibrium of behavioral economics. You know, I'm in the middle of a – I'm reluctant to call it a debate. It's really an <laughs> argument with Nassim Taleb oh, yes. about the issue of how we perceive or misperceive risk. And I think when you look at the actual numbers of uh, total number of deaths relative to things like heart disease, cancer sure. – Falling out of bed, more pe many more people die each year falling out of bed. Or in the shower. Th yeah. th then are yeah. killed by terrorists. But, but his argument is, 
Well, you're looking at it in a normal distribution. It's really a, a fat tail event. And if a terrorist gets a biological weapon or a nuclear weapon and the, yeah. the numbers are just throw those all out, it's millions. And part of me is I understand the fat tail to the guy who wrote The Black Swan, though. Does everything begin to yeah. look like a, a fat tail? <laughs> and are we being pessimistic and fearful and giving into our worst instincts, which is kind of how terrorists operate. Well, That's what they know, want us and, to do. And, and Barry, I have to tell you that uh, certainly one thing that I've observed and, and, and that we've noticed, and again, compared when we began our career, if you had told us in the 19, uh, late 80s, early 90s, fast forward in the year 2017, there'll be five, six, or seven wars in the Middle East. They're all right. shooting each other. Everybody's blowing each other up. Oh, and by the way, North Korea's got a nuclear warhead and an IC. Uh, BM. Oh, and right. by the way, someone flew a plane into the World Trade Center. You would basically say, you know, the S&P will be down 82 percent. Right. <laughs> so we're in a world where there is this overlay of all this stuff that can happen, all these black swans that can happen. And yet financial markets, you know, move on. So, I, I the one way to look at that is to say the market has looked at it, discounted the likely possibility of yeah, that occurring no, right. and is is looking at the probabilities that although the that that something awful isn't going to happen, and then the counter argument is well, the markets seem to think the same thing around 07, and look what happened yeah, then. Yeah. So it, it's really a fascinating um, question. Let Let's talk about failure. Tell us about a time something you tried to do uh, and failed. Uh, what was that? Why? What did you learn from the experience? Of something not working out as expected. Well, I think I what I I would I would say early in my career I I I made a misjudgment, a failure, to think that I was going to be a mathematical economist and make my breakthrough by sitting in a room with equations, and some and reveal some ultimate mathematical truth. And I spent about five years doing that, not very successfully to myself or others, and I really realized that what I got into economics was to actually be trying to understand the world the way it was, not the way it fit into a model. So I had to shift gears away from thinking of myself as an abstract mathematician to someone who began to think of himself as doing empirical work to more or less understand the world as messy as it was. And I get back to the point I made about Ben Friedman giving me the advice, which is economics is about the questions we ask, not about the methodology that that we use. But it took me about five years to, to sort of realize that. That that's really interesting. It was I don't I don't picture you as a uh, equation guy. I picture uh, you as a question I, guy. I I I I, I was. Um yeah. tell us about something you do outside of the office. What do you do to keep well, mentally I, and physically I, fit? I, I already I already plugged the uh plugged the, music. the C D so that's the does that's that, the hobby. Does that help you relax? Oh, is absolutely. That, oh, is sure. Is that a, a yeah. method of unwinding? Well, it also helps me to commute because I live in Connecticut, so I spend you know two and a half hours plus a day on Metro North. And through the wonders of technology, thank you, Steve Jobs, You know, I have a lot of my musical projects on my iPad, so I can do editing and stuff on right. the train. In terms of away from that, uh, I'm, I'm sort of a weekend golfer with my boys. Uh, they're much better than I am, so it's, it counts as both some golf time and family time. And, you know... In my 40s, I took up downhill skiing, and I'll never be great, but one week a year I go skiing, and I love it. So that's sort of my, uh, sort of my outside the office. And where of course, do you ski? I, take, I love to go for walks with my wife mm -hmm. in Connecticut, yeah. Where, where do you go skiing? 
Well, that's the great thing. We've been skiing a lot. Of, so we've been to Europe. We've been to the Dolomites in Italy. We've been to, to the Swiss Alps. We've been out to Deer Valley, to Taos. And so you get to see different parts of the world that way. One week a year. Yeah, maybe two. Yeah, that's all I can afford. So so quick footnote. In grad school, my best friend, uh, undergrad, had been Dartmouth, and he had been on the ski team. Yeah. And I used to go to Hunter and other local yeah. mountains, and I thought I was okay. And... Uh, he suggested we join a ski group in our last year of grad school where we would take a bunch of college kids on some ski tour group, and this way broke grad students would get transportation, lift tickets, food, yeah. uh, housing. And so we did that, and he was just amazing. Yeah. And all I would do is try and keep up with him and not hit a tree. That, those were my two <laughs> goals. And you, real, it's one of those things I mentioned Dunning-Kruger earlier, it's one of those things where you quickly are disabused of any (laughs) false impression that you have some sort of skills in that area. It's like, oh, I could make it down the mountain without falling down. He's plowing through moguls at 60 miles an hour and uh, just blowing my mind. But that's what four years at Dartmouth will get you uh, into a decent grad school and and great uh, skiing skills. Yeah. so you work with a lot of students. You work with millennials. What sort of advice would you give to someone who was just starting their career yeah. or thinking about starting a career in economics? Well, I, 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 I've been doing some thinking on, on that. And, and I guess the one thing I would mention in this regard, because I think relative to when, when we were coming up, it, it, students have more of a choice now. Um, and I think that uh, a lot of students starting out are attracted uh, naturally to, you know, being the next Mark Zuckerberg or, or uh, you know, uh, or uh, Bill Gates, and you know, sort of you, you sort of immediately go into an entrepreneurial mode. You're not in an organization, mm-hmm. and, and and obviously that worked out great for them. I guess the thing that I observe is, I think. I've always been part of organizations that I've been proud of and I've learned enormously. And obviously, you know, I, I, so I'm a big believer that if you have some choices in your career, uh, aligning yourself with quality organizations is a, is a positive, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we can think of negatives and there's corporate cult, cult politics and there's backstabbing and all that stuff, but that's also true in the entrepreneurial world as well. Sure. So I think, I think a career path where you, if you have some choice, both, working with them and learning within quality organizations and and also doing the entrepreneurial path at some point makes sense. But I think some folks immediately go from college or even without college right into that, I'm going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. And I don't know if that's necessarily going to serve them well. You, you need the skill set that you can only learn, learn yeah. in an organization. Right. As a kid, I used to hear people want to become the next Michael Jordan. The odds of that are just so hard yeah. and so long. And think, he played in North Carolina, which is a very good organization. Right. He's not that's the guy right. who went right from high school to the NBA. That's, that, that's he played right. in a good organization. <laughs> so, so there are things to be garnered from yeah. from quality um, uh, surroundings. Yeah. And and our final question, my and one of my favorites, what is it that you know about the world of economics, global macroeconomics, yeah. investing? Today that you wish you knew 25, 30 years ago. Yeah, and and I think to me the the, the financial crisis uh, was a, a real eye opener on this. I, you know, I think the one thing that at least I and I think a lot of us understand now about global the global financial system um, 
is that in some very important respects, um, it only operates with a level of transparency and oversight and regulation um, because in the absence of that, there are just too many incentives and there's too much money floating around. And I'm not talking about things that are illegal, but I'm, I'm saying that I think a lot of the global financial system before the crisis was essentially priced and traded on a view that there was an implicit put option to some central bank somewhere. The, the Greenspan put? Well, as it had been alluded to. Um, and, and I think the failure to recognize that was 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 very was was very costly. So now whenever I look at global macro, anything involving credit or anything involving lending and borrowing, the first question I ask is how who do markets think has got the put option on this and how and how is it priced? And I think a lot of a lot of mistakes in finance are about either opaque or mispriced put options to central banks or governments. We have been speaking with Professor Richard Clarida. Richard, thank you so much for being well, so generous you. with your time. If you uh, want to find more of Professor Clarida's writings, you can go to the NBER website. Uh, you have a page at Columbia University. Yes. And where else can they find information about your CD or anything else? Well, this, the, the CD is on iTunes and on Apple Music. So you just type in uh, Richard Clarida and the t name is Time No Changes. It'll pop right up. Fantastic. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes or SoundCloud, Overcast, or Bloomberg.com, and you can see any of the other 100-plus. <laughs> gee, we're coming up on 150 other such conversations. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not thank my engineer, uh, Medina Parwana, my booker and producer, Taylor Riggs, and my head of research, Michael Batnick, for all of their assistance in putting these questions and interviews together. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to me at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg.